Well, welcome to the Big Ideas in App Architecture podcast. I'm your host, Tim Vale, and today I am very excited to be joined by my longtime friend, Paul Lawler, who is head of software at Wahoo Fitness, an Atlanta-based company uh, where I'm currently located, as you are too, Paul. Welcome to the show. Uh, before we get kind of into architecture, big ideas, all that stuff, tell us a little bit about Wahoo Fitness, who you are, what you're doing there, kind of let it, let everybody know what uh, what's happening at Wahoo. Well, thanks for having me on today, uh, Tim. So let's start there. Um, I am uh, head of software at Wahoo Fitness. Uh, I'm ju- I have an early tenure there, uh, started in April of 22. Um, so starting to close in on one year at Wahoo. Wahoo is a uh, I would Wahoo is a technology company. Um, we service the fitness industry. Um, it's about a little over ten years old. Um, Chip Hawkins is our founder. Uh, he's an Atlanta guy as well. Um, Wahoo had a number of what uh, Ant Plus devices. So Ant Plus is a protocol for uh, communicating um, with um, independent fitness devices. Um, and that was many years ago. Uh, so like a heart rate monitor, um, dongles that would attach to your computer so you could read information back and forth. But where Wahoo really started to grow um, and kind of uh, its big splash was what we call the kicker. Uh, so it's a, a K-I-C-K-R. Uh, the kicker is an indoor um, bicycle trainer. Uh, so you, it's, it's what we call a direct drive trainer where you put your you take your back wheel off your off your bike, and you can put it onto a uh, drivetrain on the device itself. And what that provides is a um, uh, uh, it's basically a, a, a data platform for uh, broadcasting your power data, um, cadence, speed, et cetera, et cetera. And now, in, in in the deal with that is that it works with a whole bunch of different software that's out there, a bunch of third parties that then can create a training experiences indoors um, to help you become a bigger, uh, better, faster athlete. You know, just looking, looking over the, the website, I mean, y'all have a lot of the kind of a lot of products, a lot of offerings, obviously, you know, you mentioned the word data data is obviously an integral part of what y'all do as is software. Tell, tell us a little bit about kind of, you know, how important software data and ultimately, you know, where we're going to go with this, I suppose, is kind of, you know, the application architecture itself. But, you know, you know, kind of how, how aside from the hardware and, and all that stuff, how, how important is, you know, software and data to kind of what, what Wahoo is doing today? Yeah, it's foundational. Um, <clears throat> when uh, Wahoo's kind of like, uh, I would say, when it comes to software, it starts at the machine level, at that device level. So, you know, we, uh, one of my teams is our firmware team. And that's where we get actual information, you know, what we, what, what you and I would call data that we can actually pull off of what the machine is actually doing. So things like um, torque, we have a hysteresis brake, we have also we have a, a physics engine. Uh, it's a, it's a, a brake that actually regulates uh, the amount of resistance that oh, you interesting. feel okay. on the, uh, on the uh, bike itself, uh, on the trainer itself. Um, we have a physics engine that runs at the firmware level, um, so that it creates, uh, as realistic a ride feel as you can create in indoors. Um, I would argue that we probably have the most realistic ride feel out of, uh, out of, uh, anybody in the industry. Um, and that's what attracts people to, to, to Wahoo devices, right? So it's a premium experience for, um, uh, for athletes. Um, and we consider everybody an athlete, by the way. 
So starting at that level and working its way up what I would call our stack, um, we are capturing all of that information that's happening at that physical level and transforming it into a signal or a series of signals that can then be represented um, to the end user. For example, what is the current wattage that you're doing? Uh, what is the current wattage that the workout that you're doing, if you're using our system, uh, SYSTM, uh, we don't like vowels at, at Wahoo. Uh, if you're using uh, our system software, uh, training software, how are the watts that you're producing? Uh, what are they relative to the, uh, to the training prescription for that particular activity? And that allows you to say, okay, you know, I'm, we can set it so that I want you to lock in at 200 watts, Tim, for the next 30 minutes. And that type of training is designed to elicit response from you physiologically. Um, so that's going to make you a better endurance athlete, right? You do enough of these sessions, which are varied and over time, uh, either with a coach or self-coached, we're going to turn you into a, into a better athlete. And God knows you need uh, all the help you can get. So <laughs> you talking to me personally or just in, in, in general? Because, you know, personally, I, I, I do actually need quite a bit of help. Like I said, I, I think I've been on that bike upstairs like twice. And, and the problem is, like, I, I start and, I mean, you know, I, I have friends who do, the, you know, 30, 45 minutes. I have five minutes in. I'm like, all right, you know what? I, I, I'm done with this. So I, I, I don't suspect I'm generating or would generate uh, a There's plenty of data, data in that five minutes. Uh, we, or we, or uh, signals. We're, we're capturing yeah, information from the trainer uh, I would say every, about every eighth of a second. So there, there's a true stream of data coming from that, um, coming from that device. Now that's not what you see on the screen. Um, but it allows us to zero in and, and, um, uh, create, allows us to zero in on that data and create as, as, as quality of data uh, training experience for our athletes. Yeah. Talk to me about you can like, what is that journey? Like kind of that data journey? Because I, you know, again, I, you know, I've never had this conversation with somebody who, you know, kind of, you know, operates these devices or, or, or has built software for these devices. So all this stuff is happening. These signals are going where, I mean, is this all headed up to kind of, you know, a, a, a centralized repository in the cloud? I mean, w walk us through if you can, just kind of what, what is overall at, you know, at a high level, what's, what's kind of the architecture supporting, you know, these devices? We talk about it at the lower level, and then we'll work our way up to how it gets stored and um, um, then reflected back to the athlete. Um, so we talked about the firmware that captures, you know, kind of raw information from the device itself, right? This is in, in, in how that gets modulated by our physics engine to provide a real, uh, a, a, a realistic feel of, of being on a bike. Um, we have a software layer, what we call our Wahoo sensor management, um, layer, which then translates that those, those signals. So when not only do we communicate with our own trainers, but we communicate with third-party trainers. So if you're using Garmin has, uh, what's called the tax, uh, Neo trainer set, um, uh, Saris has a trainer, uh, stages has a trainer called the SB 20. Um, so all of, not only ours, but all these third parties, um, uh, we connect to in addition, you've probably, I don't know if you ever used like, uh, your, your Apple watch, um, but a heart rate monitor, a strap based monitor, wrist based monitor, um, will connect with those devices as well. Right. And so what the Wahoo sensor management protocol does that, or that layer of the uh, stack is it consolidates all these signals into a, um, way in which our training software 
can then aggregate that information back to the user. So for example, if you are picking an activity, hey, I want to ride on the trainer today. I want to, I'm going to go into system. I'm going to pick a, um, uh, pick a workout that's like, let's say 60 minutes at an easy pace, an easy endurance pace, right? We will then, we can set the trainer through this stack of, um, of signal processing to make the trainer just lock right in at whatever um, the appropriate wattage is for you. So all you have to do is pedal, right? And you're going to get the benefit of, of that workout without having to think about it. However, you might also want to do a, an interval workout. So um, probably Peloton, in your experience, you, you probably do some high intensity stuff and you go down low intensity, then high intensity, and then low intensity, right? And in the five... In the five minutes that you last on the, uh, on the, yeah, of course, <laughs> a lot of high intensity, very high. So, extremely high. uh, those are what we call intervals. And, uh, when using our software or any third party software, you, we allow for that, for our trainer to be controlled, not only for the signal to, to come up to the user through that software, through that interface, but also the, the training software can then tell the trainer what to do. So it can control your output. Um, and basically elicit a physiological response from you as an athlete to, uh, to get the benefits of, of your training program. So, um, that Wahoo sensor management program, uh, that, that protocol consolidates that information. It then communicates to, um, those signals to our own internal training software for using system or a third party like training peaks, trainer road, uh, Zwift is a very popular, um, uh, platform and we have a, a, a an analog uh, platform called RGT, um, which is a virtual experience. So you have an avatar and you're pedaling in a in a virtual world. Interesting. So t- t- tell tell us a little bit about kind of the the so uh, architecturally, I think I kind of understand, or at least it, it, you know generally the layering. And what's the tech stack look like to do all this? I mean, you the, obviously there's a lot of moving pieces. I mean, you know, because you're you're kind of responsible for the whole thing, right? I mean, it's all the way from down to the firmware. I mean, Wahoo in general, whether yeah, you personally are or not. Said, I'm just but, I mean, a one man show. Yeah, all, you're, you're doing it all. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course, always have been, which we'll get into. Um, but w- what does that tech stack look like to kind of to control all this? So when you're at the at the device level, it's generally C. Um, so a lot of, a lot of C, C++, um, we have, uh, libraries, internal libraries, uh, one of which is called Crux, um, which is a general purpose library that we use to communicate with all of our devices and, and, and in addition, third parties. So this is, uh, depending on the type of protocol that the connection is made through. So for example, we can connect through Bluetooth, we can connect through Ant Plus, um, some devices will give more information depending on the protocol than others. So what we try to do is get as much information from uh, the device that we're connected to as possible and then translate that into more of a consistent set of signals that can then be interpreted by the training software. So C, C++ at that kind of lowest level for the most part. Um, once you get up a level, then you're in, then you're on your native, um, you're, you're on your native device. So you're talking to the, uh, talking to the trainer through your phone. So you're, you're managing your connection, for example, uh, that pairing of, of, of your, um, your trainer, uh, through our native app. We have, a, we have a, a couple of native apps, our Wahoo fitness app, as well as our element app. Um, 
And that is uh, Android uh, and Java on one side, and you've got iOS and Swift on the other side. And we have a bunch of Objective-C as well, but that's a lot of our legacy code. We've moved, moved as much as we can over to Swift. Working our way up. The, so, so that's kind of like you're pairing on your native device, and then you're going to run that training software on your phone. You can run it on a tablet. You can run it on a desktop. And that's where we have a combination of um, uh, React-based applications um, and then uh, uh, plugins to communicate with those signals through a, a hybrid application, essentially. Does that make sense? Is that, that a terrible... It, it uh, does. It, it does. I mean, you know, working for a database company, I'm always kind of curious, like, where does all this, where is all this data stored? I right, mean, so we'll get what are you guys, what are, what are you guys do, doing for the back end? Like, like, let's bring this back this. around to... No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I, look, I, I want to hear more about the C layer, but, uh, you know, where does all this end up? Ultimately, it ends up in uh, our Wahoo cloud. So we have a cloud backend and the core, if, if you had to boil it all down, Tim, uh, the FIT specification, which came out of Garmin years and years ago, that's the uh, flexible interoperable data transfer pro- uh, specification. Everything gets stored in a FIT file. And that's a binary uh, specification. And it, it was developed to be able to have a general purpose way of storing GPS-related data. Now, you're like, well, wait a minute. Indoor trainers, there's no GPS there. <laughs> True. <laughs> However, all the- Why is this thing moving? Hey, how's it, where's this thing going? <laughs> so all of the signals that come uh, from the devices gets put into that FIT file as well. And that all gets uh, posted up to um, our cloud and, and ultimately stored in S3. So we, our, our, da- our public API and internal private APIs, it is backed by uh, relational data store, MySQL, uh, running in Amazon RDS-based uh, uh, MySQL. But all of the good stuff is stored in the FIT file. Um, and we'll, we'll break that stuff out if we need to do like kind of optimize, um, let's say analytics or, um, you know, a, a review of that, of, of that athlete's activity, uh, that they just did in, in a, in an optimized way to render that either on the phone screen or on a website. But, uh, ultimately fit is the, uh, is the way in which that data gets, um, is stored and transported. Interesting. Now. You and I could probably talk about Wahoo Fitness forever, and um, but you haven't always been in the fitness industry. I know you know you're you're a big athlete, have always uh, you know very uh, active in biking, but for a long time, and, and really where you and I first kind of started working closely together was in education, um, and, uh, and and so tell us a little bit about kind of some of the things you you did prior to. Um, to, to joining Wahoo Fitness, because I've known you for a long time and all, you've always been, I think, one of the most competent and gifted software architects I've ever worked with. And I had the pleasure <laughs> of working with you many years ago when we were kind of designing some, you know, some very early systems, which I think we should talk about, because I think, you know, looking back on, on the kinds of things we built so many years ago, it's it's kind of funny today, given the the, the simplicity, really, that they had. But, but you know, let, let's walk back a little bit. So prior to joining Wahoo, what were you doing? Because you was a, an education company. I'd love to hear just a little bit about kind of that and, and some of the software and architecture, because you were there a little bit longer than you've been at Wahoo. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, well, Wahoo's only been there for, for about a year. Um, 
uh, prior to Wahoo, I was at Echo 360 as uh, VP of engineering. And I was there for about seven years. I joined Echo 360 as a uh, principal architect. Um, that Echo 360, uh, still around today, um, they are an online uh, education video platform. Um, so if you think of, you walk into a, uh, a classroom, right? Your last uh, kind of hardcore education experience, what, University of Georgia? Like th- right, correct. 40, yeah. 50 years ago? Uh, <laughs> it seems that way. You, you, you walk into a classroom, uh, Echo 360 would have devices uh, in a rack in the classroom somewhere or in some centralized location at the, that the university specified. Professor walks in, that session, that, that lecture is timed. You know, I'm going to, you know, uh, CompSci 101 at 11 a.m., um, those devices come on and start recording video in the classroom, multiple channels to allow for screen sharing, that sort of stuff. But the real, um, fun stuff happens as those video streams go out, get stored into, uh, into the cloud architecture, um, and captured for on demand or live interaction from the, uh, from the student population. So that, that was, a you know, there, there's a lot of problems that we're trying to solve there because it was a fairly Echo 360 went from an on-prem solution to a cloud-based solution, which was a massive undertaking uh, to begin with. You have a fairly staid, conservative market in higher ed or education in general. Um, I was in ed tech for well over a decade, um, you know, and a good part of that was with you. Uh, so there, th- there's a lot of challenges trying to make that cost effective. Nobody likes to, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough market to spend a lot of money in um, because everybody has pretty tight budgets. Uh, so how do you build a platform that can scale out pretty, pretty reasonably, uh, but also from a uh, cost per student um, perspective is, is, uh, is reasonable for institutions to take on? Well, let's talk about kind of that journey a little bit, if we can, because I think it's one thing, you know, in in my daily work at, at Cockroach, we're, you know, I think maybe this is less and less prevalent than it was a couple of years ago, maybe, you know, certainly when when Echo may have been going through this. But, you know, this idea that that the companies, whether it's on the app side or the data side, are migrating, you know, from kind of on-prem to the cloud. I mean, it, you know, I think most people would agree and certainly the vision has been, let's get everything we can, you know, to the cloud in a hurry. But as, as I'm sure you experienced there and have experienced other places, that journey from, you know, applications and data living primarily, you know, on-prem and data centers that you manage to the cloud is not necessarily, you know, always easy or always straightforward. I mean, can you talk a little bit about kind of, you know, what that journey was like for y'all or, you know, what some of the challenges were? I would say the, the social challenges were, were actually harder than the technical challenges, quite frankly. So, so you have an industry or, you know, these institutions have departments dedicated to um, managing on-premise solutions. Um, and there's a lot of investment, uh, both in people and infrastructure to support that. So when you turn around and say, hey, by the way, we're going to go ahead and um, move our platform over to a pure cloud-based uh, implementation. Immediately, they're like, well, wait a minute, I've got a whole staff of people here. What do I do with them? Like, I've got all of this money invested into uh, uh, servers and um, uh, you know, network infrastructure to support your solution. What does this mean? So uh, I think the hard part was really getting past that. And 
um, you know, I, I, I would argue that there's probably, if you looked at like the, uh, the wreckage of companies that have tried to make that, um, uh, that change is probably significant, right? Like there's just, it's, it's a hard transition to make depending on the industry that you're in. Um, education being a pretty tough one to convince people to do something different than they've normally been doing. So, um, we went through, it, it was, it was more of a gradual transition. It took probably about that started before I got to echo. So it was about a year in, um, before I got there and a lot of mistakes were made prior to that. And a lot of mistakes were made after that, but it took about two, three years to fully get everybody transitioned. But I think Echo had a fairly robust customer service and a robust relationship with all of the uh, institutions that that the company served, and so that made it a lot easier than it w- normally would have been. Now, you know, you, you use the word mistake, um, and I and <laughs> you know, it's it's always interesting. I think it, you know when when we're talking about kind of software architecture and and you know system design, um, you know, very rarely do you get it right the first time. Um, and you know, I, I think one of the things I've learned over, over my career and certainly working with various customers is that, you know, just things happen, right. Uh, the kind of the designs you lay out at the beginning of, uh, of some cycle might not always stand the test of time and you end up having to iterate. I mean, can you think back on, <laughs> you know, not to put you on the spot, but you know, can you think, can you think back to some times where, you know, <sighs> Hey, we, we had this great idea, this, you know, this architectural design, this concept, something, you know, this pattern we wanted to employ. And, you know, at at some point for whatever reason, it it just never quite turned out the way we'd hoped. Um, or, or, you know, maybe another way to say it, it's just, you know, some of the mistakes maybe along the way, whether, you know, it's, it's at echo or even Wahoo or even farther back that you're like, ah, man, learn from that one. I'm going to, I'm going to be an open book, uh, with here. So when I, when, when you and I worked together, that was until about what, 2008, when we worked closely together, because we've been working together for a long time, even prior to that. But I want to say like when we were at Advanced Ed, it was 2008 and ultimately left there about 2012, 13. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep. And when I uh, I went to InBloom, which, uh, which was an ed tech nonprofit startup, funded by uh, Gates Foundation and uh, Gates and uh, Carnegie, I think, or Broad, the combination of three. The consulting firms that were involved there before we built the software team at InBloom were were what I like to call burning innovation tokens. They were burning innovation tokens left and right. And um, we had to clean up a lot of that mess. But my point with all that is when I made my way into Echo 360, one of the things that I had said was to myself was, because I, I had gone through a number of different companies prior to getting there and, and being there for a while, was I'm going to burn some innovation tokens, right? We're going to push the envelope on on learning and like creating infrastructure that can last, right? So we're going to try some stuff that may blow up in our face. And that was uh, microservices were starting to uh, to emerge as as a as a new pattern, or, or at least becoming more of an established pattern in 20, that would have been 2013 to 2015. And so I dabbled a little bit. I was at a startup, a Bay Area startup in the ed tech space for, uh, for about six months. <laughs> um, and, you know, I dabbled a little bit in some of the microservices um, 
uh, work there just to kind of get my feet wet. But then got to Echo and they were like, look, this architecture isn't working. They had outsourced the uh, SaaS cloud, the the, the initial SaaS and cloud solution to a third party. And um, that third party was burning their own innovation tokens because they were working with Scala um, and some new tech uh, uh, running on AWS. And I said, okay, well, nobody's, nobody's against this stuff here, right? So um, it was a concerted decision to say, let's go ahead and not build a, let's, let's try the microservice thing, not build a, a monolith, but let's set up some infrastructure that helps us get there. And that's when um, uh, myself and the team that I started building, we were playing with things like Kafka. Um, I don't know in terms of the backend dynamo db was was in heavy use um but we were trying to get a lot of that transitioned over to um uh to managed uh, relational database I, i'm not sure if rds was in play at the time but um it was really about how do we set up uh, a container so docker was a big deal as well for us at that point so um like containerized microservices with a uh with a, a backbone uh, supported by uh, uh kafka and a pub sub uh, pattern i think was Let's, let's push that hard. And I think the biggest probably mistake was trying to figure out, like trying to get too granular on the microservice side. Um, and so, you know, Netflix was doing this stuff for a few years, right? Like they were really good at it, but they also had a massive uh, site reliability team and they were able to create an environment where you could deploy and manage um, you know, thousands of, of, of containers, uh, in, in their case, probably tens of thousands of containers running in, in, in an orchestrated manner. And we just didn't have a lot of experience with that. We're learning on the fly, uh, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah. I think it's interesting. You bring up microservices. I, I get the sense in talking to a lot of companies and, and even some of the folks we've had on the show, um, you know, I, I feel like the pendulum has swung a little bit here, you know, where, you know, obviously Back when we started, and it's fun to think about the kinds of applications we built in those architectures, you know, where it was like a single Tomcat instance, or maybe we had like a, a second Tomcat instance, right? It's, you know, this whoa, big whoa, monolithic. Whoa, slow down. <laughs> I know, I know. Hey, wait a minute. You, wait, wait. You want to like have two? I don't, you know, but, but ultimately, obviously, you're right. Like in that 2013, it'd be interesting to go back and actually kind of research what the timeline was. But at some point, right, the, I felt like the pendulum really, really swung hard to microservices. And, you know, it's like, if you weren't doing that, if your application architecture didn't, you know, wasn't broken down into these, you know, you know, hundreds of services and each one using its own database, you were, you were somehow doing something wrong. And I think, you know, for, for a long time, that's kind of, that's kind of been the, the status quo to some extent. Uh, but I, I, I'm curious what, what your sense is now about this, because I guess where I was going is I feel like what, what's starting to happen is people are, and I think this is maybe implied in what you were saying you know, that people are starting to realize that that in and of itself brings all sorts of complexity and to some degree uncertainty, you know, I mean, they're hard, they're hard systems sometimes to wrap your, your head around. And when things go wrong, it can be very difficult to triage. I mean, is that, is that the feeling you get that like, Hey, and there's a more balanced approach here, you know, not everything has to have its own database. Not everything has to be this, you know, nano service that, I mean, I've heard, I've even heard people talking about like, Hey, I like, I'm fine with monoliths now. I'm like, I'm back to pendulum's always going to swing back. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I think when, when we looked at what Netflix was doing, right. So like there was a lot of stuff, Tim, you know, uh, you, you introduced me to spring many, 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 many years ago. Right. I think that was like, Oh, four, Oh five. And I was like, well, what is this? This is like awesome. 
And Spring has done a really good job of evolving, I think, with the times. They're, they're always providing some, um, uh, some high quality level of support for the patterns of the times that, that you're in. And um, at, in 20, I would say like about 10, 10, 12 years ago, Spring was really, Netflix was, was collaborating with the Spring team and, and building uh, a number of patterns like service location. Um, some stuff around authentication, authorization uh, in this distributed environment. And we were looking at that and saying, okay, um, we can kind of like piggyback on some of these things, but we weren't a spring shop, right? So we were just kind of like replicating some of the patterns that were, that were being built out with the Netflix and spring um, uh, collaboration. So in terms of complexity and swinging the pendulum back, we were looking at like, what are the patterns that these guys are employing? Like, how do you make this actually work? And Netflix was probably not the right template because they were literally able to do things like they were, they were deploying services that were at the function or method level, essentially, right? Like um, kind of a quasi Lambda um, uh, in those days. And uh, so what we found was we tried to, we tried to, uh, at Echo, we tried to, to look at things from a domain perspective and reduce the, well, map the microservice uh, functionality to the domain. So for example, you might have a user domain, you might have an auth domain, you might have an, uh, an auth Z domain, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what we found was there's coordination between the services and Kafka helped a lot of that, right? You never, like one of the early, early mistakes I made in a microservice environment was having services talk directly to one another. And that was just a terrible idea. So, you know, failed, failed hard on that. Um, so we, <laughs> let's, we should just do a whole podcast on just failures. Uh, it would never end. Um, it, it, yes, so true. So Kafka helped mitigate a lot of that. But what we found was in building out the micro, we found that it would have been better to look at it from a macro. So maybe not a monolith, but like certainly macro services. So there are domain services that work in concert with one another, particularly on the back end, you know, from a data standpoint. and can those be grouped together in kind of like a, uh, an orchestrated set of macro services? And I think the first thing you absolutely have to do before you go down that, that path in terms of distributed um, uh, service-oriented architecture is you better damn well make sure you've got a good site reliability team. Otherwise, it's just disaster. I think you can pawn some of that off today. It's getting a little bit more... Um, it's getting a little bit more sophisticated with managed services uh, with AWS um, for example, or, uh, some of these higher level, uh, uh, platform as a service type companies like Heroku and, and others. But, um, yeah, I think you have to take a real hard look at what your capabilities are as an organization as, and as a team. And then can you get to delivery in a reasonable manner? If you can't get to kind of like CD, then you're, you're in big trouble with, with that type of architecture. It, that kind of brings up an interesting thought, which is, is I wonder, and, and maybe you didn't mean this, but I, you know, when I, you used a term earlier, which I thought was super interesting, which is this kind of burning these um, innovation tokens, right? And so maybe we could talk a little bit more about that. But I, I, it, what you just said made me think about, I, I think one of the kind of the dilemmas that folks have, which is, you know, this desire to, to kind of be on the cutting edge of technology to, to 
you know, to do and, and use, you know, all the stuff that's out there. And I think, you know, that's, a, we could do a whole podcast just on all the crazy stuff that, you know, is emerging day in and day out. And there, there is a need and a desire, I think, for all of us in technology to, to stay up to date, to stay current, to, to use this stuff. But you also, at the end of the day, you have to deliver, you know, you have to build software that your customers ultimately use, um, you know, it, it, that's ultimately, I think, you know, unless you're doing it for some other reason, that's the ultimate measuring stick. Can you, can you push software? Can you, you get it out the door? Can, can, and do people use it? I mean, I'm curious your thoughts on that balance because it is a balance, right? I mean, you don't, you don't want to be stuck, you know, 30 years in the past, uh, but you don't want to be so bleeding edge that you spend all of your time tripping over the challenges that, that, you know, adopting brand new technology, um, introduces what what are your thoughts on that 100 i mean i agree with i agree with a lot of what you're saying uh in my role in my role now and for the past four or five years is really about how do i get the value stream of the offering to our customers into their hands as as quickly and with as high quality as possible and quite frankly it, it doesn't have that much to do with uh, the software du jour, the innovation du jour, right? Like, like it, it has much less to do with that and more, it has more to do with starting with high functioning teams, either hiring for that or, um, or, uh, setting an environment where teams can function in a high performance, uh, manner and, and establishing what the criteria for that is. And then whether it's, CICD, whether it is like bleeding edge pipelines, whether it's manual, whatever, whatever, whatever that uh, process is by which you get your service into the hands of your customers, that has to be reproducible and consistent. And whether, you know, uh, if you're on a two week schedule, a one week schedule, a daily schedule, a, mi a minute by minute schedule, as, as you commit um, and approve commits and, and get into master branches and deploy immediately. To me, that doesn't matter as long as it gets into your customer's hands in a reproducible state, um, a consistent state, and, and they're happy, then that's that's ultimately what my job is about these days, right? So um, I'll evaluate. So in my days as an architect, right, it was, it was a lot about, hey, how can I leverage <laughs> this technology to not only satisfy what the company's trying to do, what the organization's trying to do, but also my own personal learning goals, right? I mean, like we just... That's just a, uh, don't let anybody lie to you. Uh, like that's something that we all do, right? Like let's find something new and shiny and go play. And I love it, right? That's a lot of fun. Um, until you get from prototype to actual, uh, production level implementation. So I think a lot of people, um, when you're, when you're faced with the reality of operating for a large customer base at scale with, um, high SLAs. When in my Echo days, um, our SLA was five nines in terms of video um, uh, um, video consistency. So, like, we would not lose. We literally would not, if you used Echo devices, our hardware devices, you would not lose a um, a video. You would not lose a lecture. That was our commitment to our customers, because a professor could go in there for three hours, you know, do a lecture, and then we're like, oh, sorry, we lost it. Doesn't exist anymore, right? That's just absolutely unacceptable. So then you start moving towards processes and technologies that are just absolutely battle hardened. And what it does is it takes you back probably to some of the technology that we used in our early days in our careers, Tim, that, um, uh, that were just tried and true relational databases to some extent, um, 
an application architecture, you know, a, a stack that like, you know, Java or um, uh, something that's, that's fairly uh, battle hardened in the application space. Um, and then, you know, uh, agile is pretty much uh, ubiquitous, but how you go about implementing that is, is, uh, is where it's all um, uh, evaluated in terms of its effectiveness. I, I think things like, um, uh, you know, if I were, if I were to recommend like to people, Hey, how do I make sure that I'm delivering, you know, to real world customers in a, in a, in a high uptime, uh, scalable manner, I would look at like things like check out DevOps handbook. Um, I think, what is it? Uh, uh, is it Mark Larson? Um, elegant puzzle, like systems engineering. I think, I think that's his name. Will Larson. Sorry. Former guy from, I think he was at, um, Stripe, Uber, and a couple. Really? Other, yeah. Interesting. Um, okay. So, so uh, tomes like those are are ones that tomes. give you a he like that <laughs> that give Bonus you a pretty word. good perspective on on what it would take to um, uh, to build out uh, high quality systems that that ultimately serve your customers. That's really what it matters. Yeah, I think that's the key is that you can't ever lose sight of kind of that that end goal. And, and it's interesting, obviously, you know, you kind of mentioned that I don't think you use this word exactly, but, you know, resilience, like, I mean, you know, you have to you have to build systems that that last that are available. Um, you know, if in, in the in the olden days, uh, you know, or at Echo, I mean, the video dropped, you know, that that's a big problem. Well, I will say I will say this, all systems, depending on the organization, and their level of investment, whether they're using uh, innovative technologies or not, are resilient. They're just resilient with human beings. So it just depends <laughs> on where you want to put your money, right? Uh, we, because that, you know, w- what ultimately happens there now when it when it comes to video streaming in the case of Echo 360, um, you know, like there, there's if you're not capturing that that stream appropriately, then you know it could be gone. Um, when it comes to Wahoo, right, we capture that fit file. Um, it's redundant. Um, we have interstitial uh, captures of the activity file. We've lost a few, uh, admittedly, but it, that's a much smaller. Um, the stakes are much smaller in that case, right? Uh, and, and but but we have protocols in place to make sure that that happens very rarely across millions and millions of customers. Well, I, you know, I think I, I think one of the the things that have evolved, you know, just kind of like how our, our view, I think, of application architecture, you know, kind of continues to evolve over time. You know, I think I think expectations of software providers and companies is, is really really evolved. I mean, again, I think back to like when you and I started. You know, we would take this. I think we had what did we have? It, basically, it felt. I mean, whether it was or wasn't, I don't recall. But I mean, I felt like we had like a full day. We could take the system down for a full day, a couple hours, you know, do whatever we wanted to, and you know, uh, our customer base kind of allowed that. But um, but that was the kind of outage. That was the kind of resiliency that you could you could afford to have, and, and your customer, and, and in this case, our customers would continue to use the system. You know. It, it, Echo 360, you're providing five nines. You know, the, the, I think the expectations for software have, uh, and, and applications and architecture have really changed. I mean, it, you know, systems just it can't go down, shouldn't go down, even under under strange circumstances. People are no longer going to say, "Hey, do you mind if we take this thing offline for a day?" You know, while we <laughs> while we release new software. I mean, it's funny you, can't, that you can't get away with that anymore because when I when I left Echo not long after uh, we went through an acquisition. So after the uh, dust settled on the acquisition, uh, I hung out for a little while to um, restructure the engineering organization to fit the uh, combined companies and 
and all that. But part of the acquisition process and due diligence was literally around that, right? Like that was a big piece of, cause what we called ourselves a platform, right? And so the, uh, the uh, acquiring entities were like, okay, well, you know, explain to us how this is a platform. And, and a lot of it was in terms of uh, uptime. And what I, I think what they were used to was, yeah, you know, we're, you know, most companies that they were, that they were involved with were like, oh yeah, you know, we're, we're, we're up most of the time. And we were like, we have, there is no downtime. Like literally we have a no downtime uh, policy. Now our SLA is five nines, but from a, from a practical perspective, there was no downtime in the system whatsoever. So, I mean, and they, that was, that was a big selling point, right? Because they were like, well, how do you do that? And I'm like, all right, well, let me show you uh, our container orchestration. Yeah, it's it, it's so important, and obviously, you know, in the work that we do in the company that the, the that I work for, I mean, you know, not high availability resilience. That's, that's the whole name. Right, that's, what, that's what Congress right. I mean, uh, Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's core to the that's core why product. We named it the way we did. What well, can't you kill? You can't kill a cockroach. Go nuclear. Cockroach Go nuclear. Lab. Tim Vale and cockroach left. <laughs> only thing, only thing remaining. That's all. Um, you know, one of the things you've touched on in the last couple of comments, and, and then maybe we'll kind of wrap up on this theme, unless we, we discover some other interesting avenue to go down, um, is people, right? You know, um, you've mentioned a few times just kind of the teams that you've built, the kind of people. Um, I've always thought that that's super important. But as you well know, it hasn't exactly been easy over the last couple of years, kind of building teams, managing teams. Um Maybe just talk a little bit about kind of your philosophy on, on, on team building, you know, developing or building engineering teams. And then maybe, you know, what has it been like um, over the last couple of years, you know, trying to get everybody, you know, rallied around, um, you know, whatever, whatever your vision or mission is. So I, I philosophically, I think uh, the way I would look at it is take it, take your org chart. And if I'm at the as head of software, VP of engineering, whatever it is, CTO, take your org chart, flip it, and put me at the bottom. Right? I am a. Uh, I'm there for. I'm a facilitator. I'm a support entity. Um, I'm overhead. Right? At this point in my in my career, I'm overhead for for my engineering teams. Um, my job is to make sure that anything that gets in their way, in terms of what we talked about earlier. Uh, delivering that value stream to the customer on a fast, um, consistent, reliable basis. Anything that gets in their way, I need to take care of. I need to help them um, get around it. And that could be technology. It could be human resources. It could be um, politics of the organization, whatever it is. So, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I can't, that doesn't happen. It never happens, time. right? I never think happens. You more than two people in a room, you're going to have politics. Um so that's, that's my main function. And that's kind of how I look at it from, from a role standpoint. So my job is to make sure that I'm competent enough in those various areas to know how to, you know, navigate conflict, whether, you know, it could be technology conflict, right? I want to use X versus Y, or, you know, we have, you know, a vendor that's pushing um, a particular solution. Is it better than, you know, homegrown or another vendor, whatever it is. Um, you know, people conflicts are probably the, the, the biggest part in communication. That's really to my, in my mind, software is mainly about communication, less about technology these days. Um, I know it sounds kind of weird, but uh, I believe that, but, you know, getting teams, uh, effective, I think, uh, agile was like kind of a big deal for me back in, 
uh, see, this is like in my early, early engineering days in, I want to say like 03, 04, when the manifesto, some, sometime around then when the manifesto came out, like early 2000s, I believe, if, if I'm not, if I'm not I think mistaken. that's about right. I, I don't recall anymore either, but yeah, I think that's about right. And so uh, having a decent agile process, it, you know, whether it's Scrum or Kanban or you know, safe or whatever you're, you're doing, um, you know, people are bought in and then you have an organization, you know, like you have sponsors in the organization that are pushing some sort of process. Waterfall, like those types of approaches, while it helps senior management get their heads around, you know, what it is they're doing, it just doesn't serve the organization well. And I'm not trying to use this like agile everywhere. It's, you know, a blanket solution because you could talk... Most teams, I would say probably if you walk into any organization today and you say, yeah, we do agile, they're probably doing some half-baked approach to whatever agile process they say they signed up for. Like Scrum is probably one of the worst um, uh, processes that I see that I see implemented in, in, in most organizations, at least I've been. You mean in. the quality of how it's implemented? Absolutely, yeah. I, mean, it's just yeah, terrible, I agree right? with you. Um, A lot of people say they do things that that aren't actually true. Yeah, I mean like for the the automation side of it, right, is is generally uh bailing wire and bubblegum. Um and that's why I was saying earlier like your SRE team, your 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 delivery teams, your integration teams, um those pipelines that you're that you're building and establishing and investing in, those those are the biggest parts of that agile experience cuz it's all about delivering that value stream. That you know, what you do before that doesn't really matter. Um so in terms of like, you know, setting up teams for success, um, you know, I'm a big believer in kind of the small team approach, um, highly collaborative. Uh, I, you know, honestly, Tim, you know, when we would, I, our interview process, uh, I think was probably one of the more unique, but I feel like we would always hire for that kind of personality fit, that highly collaborative aptitude. And I feel like we cared less about the technology that those people had come into contact with. And, um, we, we, I think we, I think we did it kind of naturally when we were together at advanced ed, to some extent we did that at soul tech, uh, in our, in our consulting days. Um, but I would say now, like I absolutely look at technology last on the, uh, on, on the resume. I, I, I honestly if I had to, if I had to rank everything, like I would look for personality fit with the organizational culture, aptitude, curiosity, learning, uh, learning aptitude. Second, um, a general understanding of computer science, software engineering principles, right? Things that are lasting that don't don't uh, pass with the with the winds of technology, and then specific tech way at the bottom. And I think that's kind of critical. If you can build your organization around that, then then you're going to be able to handle those changes as technology uh, grows, or 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 you get new um, new tech. ChatGPT is a great example, right? Like kind of playing around with that lately. I mean, you know, it's it, it doesn't replace the person that's got like a great cultural fit and a high level of uh, aptitude for learning. Oh, I mean, I you know, I I couldn't agree with you more. I you know, it's all about the people, dummy. Yeah, um, yeah, and. Um, <laughs> You just cannot, you can't replace wonderful people, you know, with the best technology and, and, you know, technical acumen alone is, is interesting and helps in certain cases. But, you know, if you don't have that kind of that, that cultural fit, that ability to work well together and across teams, I mean, teaming is so important 
you know, one of our philosophies here is, is kind of this one team attitude and, and something we lean really, really heavily into, you know, to break down silos, to, to work really well together across teams, whether it's, you know, software or product or engineering, right. You know, no more can you just be this, this narrow focused, you know, technical person, right. You, to be successful, I think in modern organizations and ultimately to, you know, to deliver the kinds of things we've been talking about earlier, value for customers, right. You have to build teams that, that are capable of not only being successful, you know, in an external facing way, but, you know, in an internal facing way to be able to have, you know, meaningful conversations, build like meaningful relationships internally. It's just so important, I think. I, you know, I'll say like companies like yours, right? It mitigates the technical um, kind of depth that an organization may or may not want to get into, right? So for example... Um, like, Hey, look, I, I, we're on a relational data store. I don't know how to scale this thing out. I'm going to call Tim. He's going to help me out. Right. He's going to help. He's going to take this off my hands. Um, and, and I'm sure you guys are very successful in doing that sort of stuff, but what that doesn't, what I can't do is call you and say, I got a problem with a senior engineer who's, you know, quote unquote, brilliant asshole. Um, and he's corrosive to the team culture. What do I do with, you know, like, that's not, that's not a phone call I make to cockroach labs. I might, I might call you for advice, but I won't call cockroach for that. No, it's so true. And, and, and those are the kinds of folks that you just have to be so careful of, you know, cause they do, they're, they're kind of everywhere. Okay. So just, just wrapping up maybe, uh, cause this has been great. Uh, I've so enjoyed uh, chatting with you and, and <laughs> you're right. We could, we could talk it's a long form. You've, this is long form, long form podcast. <laughs> um, hopefully people are still listening. Uh, but it's shorter, you know, if you, if you listen on what is it 1.2 or, or 2.0, I mean, who knows if people may be listening at high speeds and so it's gone faster for go. them. I talk fast too anyway, so, uh, that's all right. Um, comprehensible two things really I, I, I want to end on. Uh, uh, so one, I'm always curious what people are reading, uh, just cause I've, I've, I've kind of been picking up some, some new books lately curious and, and you are always a big reader, maybe not now, but certainly back when we were working together, I always looked to you for, for good advice about, uh, you know, things to read, uh, both, you know, uh, on the technical sphere and other places. So a, what are you reading and B, you know, and, and whether this is, you know, personally or professionally, Wahoo, you know, what are you looking for? This is at the beginning of our fiscal year. You know, what, what are you looking forward to in, in, and for us, uh, you know, for the, the next 12 months, this, this upcoming fiscal year? Uh, for Wahoo or just in and anything, if it's Wahoo, great. If it's, if it's personally, you know, what, what's kind of, what are you looking forward to this year? Gotcha. Okay. So let's talk about, uh, reading. So I, I recommended a couple of books for people. I'm always referring to those. So I'm always popping in on, on Will Larson, anything. Uh, he's got a new one out called, um, staff engineer. I would definitely, uh, I like that you can, he's got a few of those chapters on his uh, website. So just, uh, uh, search for Will Larson. And uh, staff engineer, and, and, and you'll see some of that stuff. And that's kind of cool because at Wahoo, one of the things that I'm working on um, is what is the professional career development path for my engineering team? And that's always been pretty – every organization I've worked for has been pretty much ad hoc. Um, and You guys seem to have a, a pretty good handle because the, the conversations I've had with you and, and Cockroach, you guys seem to have a pretty good handle on it. Um, but I think for most organizations that are maybe not your now, what I would call like high functioning, typical might not be the right word, but like proto prototypical, uh, internet cloud-based engineering organizations, it's just all over the place, right? Like, it is. It's, it's very tough. 
very tough. You ask our people team. I mean, it's 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 something we work really, really hard at. Yeah, so that's that's great. And I, I just think like so getting myself kind of like grounded in how to create a professional development environment uh, at a company that, you know, um is more in that ad hoc kind of like the culture at Wahoo is very, very casual, very, um, very ground up, like kind of, uh, self self managing. And that's great in some cases. And in other cases, I think it's a, um, it's a barrier to people who need some level of guidance through that, through that career path. So yeah, so anything from Will, uh, is great. Uh, DevOps handbook. I would always go back to that because again, that is pushing the value stream that it's primarily about the value stream and getting that into the hands of the customer and using what you know people think that devops is a is a noun it's not it's a it's a it's a verb it's a it's a state of mind it's a philosophy um state of mind yeah like that uh, uh there was one other one that i wanted to mention too that was really good uh, i'm reading you know anything that comes out of like the thoughtworks technology radar i'm all over um that's always that's always good to read uh, there was one other, it might come to me. I lost, uh, lost my train of thought there, but, um, it, it might, that's all right. Pop, pop back in a minute. Um, and then what was the other part of the, uh, so what, I mean, oh, what are you looking forward yeah. to this year? Yeah. I mean, what, what, what are you hopeful for? What, what are you looking forward to? Uh, world peace, you know, like, uh, definitely <laughs> like that. So at Wahoo, I think we are doing some pretty interesting stuff. Um, uh, not a whole bunch that I can talk about, but really again, f- refocusing on our, we've gone through some economic turmoil as a lot of the tech industry has, and particularly the fitness industry. I mean, it's, it's very well documented. Um, but, uh, doubling down on our mission to, uh, build the better athlete and then really focusing on our vision of ecosystem. So I'm working on a few things, um, that uh, is very ecosystem focused. And by that, I mean, bringing your watch, you know, these are all products, our bike computer, you know, I had to go and plug that stuff here uh, on the podcast, um, our trainers, um, and our software, uh, more in line with one another as an ecosystem, as a fitness platform, as opposed to a series of devices that you, um, uh, that you just interact with, right? Like more of a, a true fitness platform. Um, so working on some neat stuff there, um, that I'm hoping will, uh, will really come to fruition as we, uh, as we work our way through 2023 and, and particularly into 2024. So professionally, that's my big, that's, that's where all the oxygen is getting, uh, is getting sucked up personally. I don't know. I'm just trying to survive day by day. I was, <laughs> it was fun. I was, I got a call from my daughter last night, at 1130. So, uh, Tim, you're a UGA grad. Uh, I am. She, I am. She proud UGA grad. There you go. She's a proud UGA undergrad, a freshman. And I encouraged her to, uh, she's always been really good at math and science and that sort of stuff. So I encouraged her, I said, look, you know, take a look at some of the sciences, whatever. So she's now in the data science program at UGA, which is a combination of computer science, statistics, all that jazz, right? Um, get the call at like 1145 last night. Hey, I got a project due tomorrow. <laughs> can you, can you help me out with a couple <laughs> things? So what do I do? I run downstairs uh, you know, fire up the old, cause they're using Java in this class, fire up the old editor. And, but lo and behold, she figured it out on her own. Right. So we, we were on a, uh, uh, we were on a, um, a chat and, uh, she managed to, uh, she had some variable initialization that wasn't, uh, quite, uh, quite right, but she got it sorted out on her own, but it was, it was fun. So that, so personally trying to get through kid in college and then to trying to get the boys, uh, through high school without burning the place down. 
Uh, I, I feel that pain. I know you do. Uh, for sure. I know you do. Well, listen, Paul, uh, it was so great to catch up with you. Hopefully, uh, folks who, who may be listening learned a lot because uh, if, if it wasn't clear already, you have um, you've had such, I think, a wonderful experience, you know, kind of uh, not only building software, but I think is is as your career has evolved since we last worked together, really leading, you know, such high quality and high functioning teams. I, I, I know Echo 360 and certainly Wahoo today are very lucky to have you at the helm uh, of their software. So once again, thank you so much for joining us. It was a real pleasure having you on. And I look forward to to, to learning more about Wahoo. Uh, maybe I'll get Damn back it. on the bike. Let's one get of you, these bikes, one of these days. Give me a trainer, get going. Um, but we'll uh, we'll be in touch uh, soon, I'm sure. Uh, Tim, appreciate uh, uh, you having me on today. Thanks for a great conversation. Probably could do this for another three, four hours. Um, uh, so anybody that's listened this far, is either insane or they're actually getting something <laughs> from this conversation. Uh, but yeah, it's been, it's been a pleasure and I appreciate all the kind words and um, uh, right back at you. All right. Talk to you soon. All right, man. Take care. Thanks again for listening to this week's Big Ideas and App Architecture. Be sure to rate us on your favorite podcast platform and tune in to a new episode every Tuesday. Thanks again. See you soon.